Hello everybody, I'm Ian Abernethy and welcome to the latest podcast. It's been a little while since the last one, uh, I've been busy on all fronts, uh, but I've got some exciting news. Uh, first bit is that the app is now ready. We have produced an app in uh, partnership with uh, Budo Code and the great platform that those guys provide for video content for schools and students. And what we've done is we've made a, an Ian Abernethy app, which you can find in all the usual places. If you want more information, if you go to ianabernethy.com, click on the shop, scroll down the shop homepage, and then you'll find app. If you click on there, it will take you to a page where you can find more details about it. Uh, it's huge amount of content. It, it is what I believe it, the biggest electronic bunkai encyclopedia in the world. Uh, we're updating it every week. So every week there's new content. There's hours and hours of exclusive footage on there. Uh, it's free for the first three days, so you can take a look at it and see what, what you, you like. And then after that, if you want to keep using it, you can um, sign up for an account. Uh, a small amount of money each month, so less than the price of a couple of cups of coffee. And I'm really grateful. It's got to a great start. Really grateful to everyone who's kind of uh, signed up uh, already. And I say we've been putting a lot of work into it and we will continue to do so. So it's all very, very exciting. I'm very proud of the app. I, and, and the feedback has been really, really good. Um, I say weekly updates all the time. If you go on there, you can find these like talking head bits from me explaining what's going on, explaining where you can find the, uh, the new content. We've got sections on uh, grappling, pad drills, katabunkai, you know, it's suitable for all styles. Really proud of it. So I'd be very grateful if you could uh, check that out and see what you think. Uh, in other news, I'm going to be a dad. Um, uh, Becky and I are expecting and our baby is due in October which is part of the reason that I've been mad busy on other fronts. Um, that also means that, of course, in October, it has been 10 years since these podcasts have been running. And I promised you something quite special for um, <laughs> a baby. <laughs> I promised you something quite special for the uh, the 10th year. That's why I was asking, what have your favourite podcasts been? So everyone sent that in. Unfortunately, because of, you know, been busy with the app and getting ready for the new arrival, I haven't had the opportunity to get that in place yet. So I'm going to have to keep that under wraps for a little bit longer. There will be something special coming to mark the 10th anniversary. But obviously, you know... Um, Becky and the new arrival have to take uh, priority, and I'm sure you you all understand that. And what that does mean, of course, is that you've got a little bit of extra time to get your favourite podcasts into me. So what have your favourite podcasts been over the last uh, 10 years? If you can email that to me at ian at ianabernethy.com, I-A-I-N at I-A-I-N-A-B-E-R-N-E-T-H-Y.com. Uh, I'd really appreciate that. But a good response. So, it, you know, we've, we're kind of getting close to our final uh, top 10, which I'm going to use for, for something special. Uh, but you may just have to wait a little bit uh, a bit longer. Uh, right, okay, so let's get into the, the main theme of this month's uh, podcast, which is Karate 3.0, uh, which is basically, it's me kind of laying out a, I suppose you call it like a manifesto, if you like for the future of karate. Some things I think that we are doing well, some things I think we need to improve upon uh, to make karate have the healthiest future possible. And of course, you know, as always, in telling you what I think, I'm not telling you how to think. So you may well disagree, but nevertheless, I hope that you find my discussion of these points uh, to be thought-provoking and uh, of interest. Right, okay, so uh, I think that's enough. I'll uh, now hand you over to the main piece, which is Karate 3.0. In this podcast, we are going to discuss the future of karate, 
or what I've labelled, clumsily perhaps, as Karate 3.0. While some like to think that traditional karate is an unchanging entity, a quick look at the history shows us that's totally untrue. Karate has never stopped evolving and changing. Indeed, the past masters recognised and encouraged this. In his book, Karate Do My Way of Life, Gichin Funakoshi wrote, Times change, the world changes, and obviously the martial arts must change too. The karate that high school students practice today is not the same karate that was practiced even as recently as 10 years ago. And it is a long way indeed from the karate that I learnt when I was a child in Okinawa. While Funakoshi did not use modern computer terminology to reflect this ceaseless evolution, he would certainly recognise the sentiment that there are many versions of karate, with each building on what went before. For the purposes of this discussion, we can say there have previously been two main versions of karate. Firstly, we have the karate of the past masters. This is the karate of Sakagawa, Matsumura, Itosu and so on. This was when karate was practiced by a relatively small number of people and the primary objective was the development of effective self-protection skills. You know, we can call this karate 1.0. Secondly, we have the revised karate of the early 1900s. This is the karate that was taught in the Okinawan education system and the Japanese university programs. This was when karate was practiced by a much larger group of people and where the aim was the development of strong minds and strong bodies. This karate, while bringing many benefits and being the karate that was able to spread throughout Japan and eventually worldwide, did not seek to be an effective self-protection solution and instead it began to gradually shift focus to the defeat of a fellow karateka in a rule-bound consensual exchange. Of course this change happened over time and we could, if we were so minded, use the numbers beyond the decimal place to mark the changes along the way. For example, Karate 1.1 was when Itosu petitioned the Okinawan school system to make karate part of its curriculum. We could say that karate was at version 1.5 when it adopted the Do ethos, the standardised training uniform and grading system from Judo and so on. We eventually reached Karate 2.0 when 3K Karate, which is karate based on formal kion, uniform kata with inset styles, and competition style kumite. That was the standard form of practice throughout Japan. This was a karate without realistic live practices, and where kata was learnt and practiced as art and or exercise, and where bunkai was never explored. Since then, karate has again continued to move through various versions. For example, the development of competition saw boxing style footwork become part of karate. And for the sake of argument, let's call that Karate 2.1. We also saw the addition of specific competition-based methods, such as back fists, hook kicks, spinning kicks, and that may take us up to Karate 2.3. More and more gradual steps took place as Karate evolved. And in the early 1990s, at least here in the UK, there was something of a martial revolution back towards realism. This was primarily spearheaded by Peter Considine, who's now a ninth dan in karate, and Jeff Thompson, who's now an eighth dan in karate. You know, and I'm honoured to include both men among my teachers and friends. Uh, my rank of sixth dan was awarded to me by both of those men and then other bodies later on. Of course, you know, there'd always been a very practical version of karate being practised, but it was by small numbers and it was far from the norm. What happened in the 1990s, during what we in the UK call the reality revolution, 
was that there was a mainstream acceptance about the need to think again about some of the baggage karate had picked up along the way. Keeping things simple, you can put this down to Jeff and Peter publicly and articulately saying that karate, and martial arts in general, had lost their way when it comes to self-protection. A year or two after Peter and Jeff started evangelising about reality, the first UFC aired. It was not the super-skilled sport it is now, but the chaos and brutality of those no-rules bouts brought home to those in any doubt that what most were practising was not applicable in actual conflict. Here in the UK, that mix was perfect for creating a zeitgeist which saw people reflecting and reassessing. And I'd like to think, you know, I did my part for karate specifically during that time through writing in magazine articles on how realism was, can and should be part of karate, as did others. In 2000, I wrote my first book, and as we moved into the early part of the decade, things like preemption, katabay sparring, bunkai, grappling, realistic impact drills, etc. were becoming more and more common, if not yet mainstream. If I were to stick an arbitrary figure on that, we could call that karate 2.6. For me personally, I started to travel and teach my take on karate when my first book came out. A take which has firm traditional roots, but which is also relevant to the modern world because of the growth those strong roots permit and encourage. I've heard my karate referred to as neoclassical, i.e. a modern revival of the past, and it's a term I quite like and believe to be accurate. When I first went to Germany in the early 2000s to teach, I got, I got a good reaction, but it would be fair to say that what I was showing was totally new and radical to most there. It felt to me that in terms of practicality, German karate was a, around a decade behind the UK. However, that's definitely not the case now. The appetite for practical bunkai is huge, as is the number of people adopting that approach. It would be fair to say that it's still not the way of the majority, but it's so commonplace that the governing body for karate in Germany now has an official way for karate to degrade in the practical side of things, just as they do for sport and traditional karate, what we pragmatists would call 3K karate. And I see similar things happening the world over. More and more people are practicing in a pragmatic way, and bunkai, in various guises, is close to being mainstream. So for my arbitrary and wholly unscientific scale, Let's say we pragmatists are now at Karate 2.9, which is pretty convenient for the Karate 3.0 that's the subject of this podcast. Of course, different groups will be at differing points on the scale, but I think it would be fair to say there is a Karate which is true to its traditional roots, while still growing and being open to functional evolution, that is widely practised and is recognisable to all Karateka through its use of katabunkai, realistic practices and pragmatic focus. So where next? We've had the age of the past masters, and I think we're at the end of the age of revised karate and its subsequent shifts in various directions. I think we're now at a point in time for the third age of karate. What I now want to do is discuss eight key points that I think need to form the basis of Karate 3.0. This will be the future of karate, a karate that is both modern and traditional and that will be pragmatic while also embracing the benefits of the martial arts away from direct use in self-protection. To me, this is where we need to go next. So let's discuss each of the elements in turn. Acceptance of the modern bunkai as the bunkai. For the last 25 years or so, there has been a concerted effort to analyse kata and extract the information within. While this has been a hugely beneficial phase for karate, we will be doing the art no favours if we remain stuck here. Karate 3.0 needs to have the confidence to step forward from never-ending analysis and the hedging of bets. 
We should stop adding caveats to all we put forward, such as, the motion may be this, or, you know, we're not sure, but this is one possibility. In my dojo, there is no doubt and no second guesses. My students know exactly what the Katna motion represents because I tell them exactly what it represents. They don't need to undergo the reverse engineering process that I undertook. They are not historians searching for the original application. They are modern day practitioners who want to practice something that works in the here and now. We know with 100% certainty what the application is for every kata we practice. We know it with full certainty because it is what we say it is. We therefore end up using the kata in exactly the same way as the masters of the past on a macro level if not a micro one. The process of kata and bunkai that we utilise works for us. And because it works, we teach it as a concrete fact, i.e. the motion means this, and here's the drill. It's not a case of open-ended interpretation in my dojo. I did the interpreting. I reached what I feel are sound conclusions, and my students are told exactly what the cat motion records. When they're higher grades, they may decide to reinterpret things, which is as it should be. But when gaining the experience that would allow them to do that effectively, there is no, mm, it could be this. It's a categoric, the motion is this. In my view, instructors should not be telling students to work it out for yourself either. You go to an instructor to be instructed. The instructor should be telling the student what the kata records. Now that may not be the original application, and it may not be the same application as the dojo down the road, but so long as it works, why should we care about that? You know, I, I don't think we should. The intention and the wider mythology is historically consistent and workable in the modern day. We should therefore not get hung up on historical details. You know, as a joke at seminars, if you knock an assailant out with a given method, when he awakes, the first thing out of his mouth is unlikely to be, well, that wasn't historically accurate. We need to get to the point where our modern interpretation has confidence in itself. And it deserves that confidence because it works. To, you know, to be clear, I'm not saying that we should stop researching and I'm not saying there should be one accepted take on Brunkai across the board. What I'm saying is that all groups need to move to a point where they are happy to say this is the Bunkai for the kata. Other groups may have other Bunkai, just as they have different kata and different ways of performing Kion. And we will amend our Bunkai if we can make it better. However, the default position in day-to-day -day classes needs to move to the confident instruction in the Bunkai that the group ascribes to. Telling students they need to work it out, or teaching without confidence and belief in the validity of modern bunkai, despite its demonstrable practical function, due to historical hang-ups, will keep us trapped in an endless cycle of analysis paralysis. Karate 3.0 knows what the modern bunkai is. The modern bunkai is the bunkai from the modern karateka. We use it and subscribe to it because it works. It is logical and it has demonstrable value. We don't dilute all of that because of some unanswerable historical question mark. Function is the only valid measure. And we should be practicing our bunkai without doubt because it has that function. Karate is one of the few physical pursuits where history is deemed a relevant consideration. Today's MMA is a world apart from the MMA of the 1990s, but everyone accepts it's still MMA. The judo of today is very different from the judo of Kano's time, but it's still judo. The boxing of today is different from the boxing of James Figg and Jack Broughton, but it's still boxing. Karate has this strange habit of wishing to remain preserved in amber. 
and it treats an improvement as a dilution of historical purity, which is really odd when you think about it, because not even the people of the time we are harking back to thought that way. Remember that Funakoshi, who was a great reviser and innovator, just as his teachers and contemporaries were, said that times change, the world changes, and obviously the martial arts must change too. We've earned the right to make our own contributions to karate. The past masters who created our art and our kata would want us to do that. To give a non-martial parallel, high jumper Dick Fosbury came up with the Fosbury flop technique, which is now universally used in high jumping. No one in high jumping stuck to the traditional method once the value of Fosbury's methods were demonstrated. It was still high jumping. It still had the same goals and rules, even if a different method for the jump was now preferred to the one being used in the past. Dick Fosbury had a personal best of 2.24 metres. However, others have taken what he started and improved on it. The current world record is over 20 centimetres higher, and in the last Olympics, all of the top 10 were jumping higher than Dick Fosbury ever did, you know, himself a winner of Olympic gold. Does that mean that Dick Fosbury's contribution to high jumping is diminished? I mean, quite the contrary. It's only because of him revolutionising the jumping method that these things have been achieved. However, none of the current crop would take a look at Dick Fosbury and proclaim him the greatest high jumper that there ever was or ever could be. You know, and I'm pretty sure that Dick Fosbury would not want his passion to peak with him and then go into permanent decline. And that, as it is, he delights in seeing people build on what he set off. I'm confident that if Funakoshi and co were alive today, they would be similarly happy to see the progress made. They may not agree with all of it, you know, but Funakoshi is a modernizer himself. You know, he would acknowledge the need for karate to continue to move forwards. He said as much. This generation of karateka needs to do for bunkai what Dick Fosbury did for high jumping. We need to instill a permanent change through giving the next generation a solid set of bunkai which they can run with. Our bunkai is good because it works. We remain true to karate's objectives and ethos, and we will forever be in the debt of those who went before, because they gave us the art we practice. However, we need to be prepared to move forwards. We also need to know that those who come after us will improve upon what we pass on, just as Dick Fosbury's methods are now used more effectively than Dick Fosbury ever used them himself. In short, Karate 3.0 will be happy to have Karate 3.0's bunkai as THE definitive bunkai based on function alone. And Karate 3.0 will no longer doubt itself because of some largely irrelevant historical question that can never be answered anyway. Okay, on to the next point. Being practical in all that we do. In modern martial parlance, we tend to think of practical being related to the self-defense side of what we do. However, I think that karate also needs to be practical when it comes to the promised improvements in health, well-being and character development too. To achieve this, we need to clearly define the objective and have a demonstrable program in place which is likely to lead to the objectives being achieved. And we need a way of measuring that progress. Up to now, there's largely been vague promises that karate will work in self-protection, develop character, improve well-being and so on. For the self-defence side of things, I think there has been much improvement in recent decades when it comes to clearly defining the objective, coming up with effective training programmes and having a means to test and measure progress. In the past, you know, the Karate 2.0 period, 
People were just told to do line work, kata and competition-style sparring, and through some unidentified, never-tested mechanism, self-defence skills would just develop. The reality revolution absolved many of that delusion, and great progress was made as a result. I now suggest we need to do the same for any and all claims we make. If we're going to make the claim that karate will develop character, then what type of character traits are we hoping to engender? What is the mechanism for promoting and developing those character traits? And how do we measure progress? Simply putting on a gi, entering the dojo and throwing punches at each other is not automatically going to result in improvements in character, well-being or health. Indeed, in certain circumstances, it can do the exact opposite. It's beyond the scope of this podcast to discuss all of these aspects in depth. However, what we can say is that we need the practicality of a clearly defined objective, a defined mechanism to progress towards that objective, and a valid test of progress in all that we do. And if any aspect of our karate is lacking those elements, then it is not right for us to claim we can deliver on them. Karate 3.0 will be effective in delivering all it sets out to, and it is devoid of vague promises which are said to be delivered through unidentified mechanisms. Okay, on to the next point. Defining context in all that we do, so we can train effectively and enjoy all the martial arts have to offer. As we've mentioned many times in these podcasts, defining context is vital. What works very well in one given context can be disastrous in another. Being unable to differentiate between contexts remains one of the biggest problems in the martial arts generally. People teach art as self-defence, they judge the value of sport by how effectively it promotes self-defence skills, the methods used for a consensual exchange with a fellow martial athlete are deemed to be optimum for the general public to use when faced with non-consensual criminal violence, and so on. It's an utter mess, and there are few signs that things are improving on this front. As we talked about in the Martial Map and Context, Context, Context podcasts, we need to differentiate between art, fighting and self-defence if we are going to train effectively. And even when we do see people effectively make this demarcation, it is often done as a value judgement and that's to largely miss the point. The art side of the martial art does have value, but it needs to be recognised for what it is and judged on its own terms. You cannot apply a value judgment from one of the other aspects because when you do that, you are failing to recognise the different contexts. The sports side of the martial arts also has huge value, but once again, that needs to be recognised for what it is and judged on its own terms. You cannot apply a value judgment from one of the other aspects because when you do that, you are once again failing to recognise the different contexts. The self-defence side of the martial arts also has huge value. But it needs to be recognised that so do the other sides of the martial art. And while self-defense skills will only be utilised by a very small number of practitioners, every one of us can benefit from increased health, improved fitness, a sense of accomplishment, uh, the joy of learning a skill and so on. If we define context properly, then two things will follow. Firstly, we can train in a focused, effective and objective-driven manner in all that we do. Secondly, we can enjoy and benefit from all aspects of the martial arts because we will see their own inherent value. Karate 3.0 will be ever mindful of context and will judge the value of all aspects of karate by the inherent nature and objectives of that aspect. No more confusion and no more judging oranges by the standards of lemons. Next point. 
accepting that change and assimilation are traditional and vital for karate's growth. As we've already touched on several times, change is both traditional and good. Karate has never been static. It has always been evolving and changing. So why do people think that dogmatic adherence to the karate of a given point in time is traditional? As we've already discussed, karate divorced itself from its original practical roots. If you are not measuring progress by increases in effectiveness, then what do you measure it by? And the answer was the ability to replicate what has arbitrarily been agreed to be the right way to do things. Once people have developed a skill that is measured against this arbitrary criteria, then any change in that criteria has an impact on the perceived level of skill. People therefore have a vested interest in maintaining the criteria their skill was developed against. This is where the it's right because we say it's right form of karate comes from. Dogma becomes the new tradition. And this is very unhealthy for karate because it stops improvements that would lead to an increase in combative efficiency. And worse still, it seeks to permanently replace effectiveness with arbitrary dogma as the yardstick by which karate measures itself. You know, the detrimental effects on this are only too clear. The one exception to this is when given groups and individuals replace one set of arbitrary criteria with another set of arbitrary criteria. This is normally done for political or financial purposes. It can mark the demarcations between groups, i.e. they have the arm here, but we have it one inch lower, therefore they're doing it wrong and only our group has the correct and traditional way. And as mentioned, it can also be done to make money. You know, you need to keep paying to come to the association courses because the head of our group has now decided that the heel should be three centimetres off the floor on cat stance and not five centimetres off the floor like it was up in the past. If you don't keep up to date with these and other changes, your cat will be wrong and neither you nor your students will be able to advance in rank. But once we measure by effect, all of that goes away. If it works, then it works. And if we can do something to make it work better, then we will do that instead of what we did before. That's what karate originally did. And that's what the karate of the future needs to do too. Now if you're listening to this and thinking I'm calling for some kind of martial blasphemy, then I'd ask you to consider where does that view come from? Is it honestly the best thing for karate to knowingly do something less effectively than it possibly could? Here's another question I have for dogmatists, which is a better word than traditionalists, because karate preserved in amber is not traditional at all. Okay, here's a question for you. List all the karate kicks that you know. Okay, I'll wait. Are you done? Okay, did your list include roundhouse kick or hook kick? If it did, then you've accepted that piece of change and assimilation as being beneficial and legitimate. So why aren't you open to others? I think it would be fair to say that the vast majority would consider roundhouse kick, or mawashigeri, as traditional and as legitimate as it gets. Here's the thing though, in Funakoshi's book Renten Goshin Karate Jitsu, written in 1925, he lists 15 leg techniques. Roundhouse kick is not among those 15. We see groin kick, knee to outer thigh, knee to inner thigh, crescent kick, return and wave kick, no roundhouse kick. Roundhouse kick is still not there in Funakoshi's 1930s book Karate do Kyohan, you know, the master text. You know, it does appear in the revised version of the book in the late 1950s. So Roundhouse Kick came into karate late, you know, after 1940, and was not included in print by Funakoshi until 1958. 
Whichever way you cut it, roundhouse kick is definitely a non-traditional, traditional technique. It also shows just how quickly something can be thought of as being a fundamental part of karate. We also need to consider the assimilation process that has always been a part of karate and ask what methods we should be bringing in now for the traditional karate of the next generation. We should see these changes as a result of measuring by effect as being both vital and traditional. Karate 3.0 needs to be open to techniques and training methods that prove their worth. We should measure by effect. And if anything improves effectiveness, then we should be making it part of karate. That way karate will continue to grow and evolve and become better and better. The next point. The end of style limitations. We all need a good grounding in what went before, but we should not allow ourselves to be enslaved by it. The traditional styles we have today are the result of talented individuals and groups organising what they have learned from other talented individuals and groups. However, it should be noted that the styles we have came into being as a direct result of those people deciding a restructuring was needed. The past masters were not gods or unique individuals who can never be equalled. They certainly never thought of themselves that way. Time has resulted in a semi-deification of the past masters, with some thinking that the styles they created are perfect and can never be improved upon. That no one can have anything valuable to say these days, and no one can have a worthwhile thought since the twilight of the gods that was the passing of the generation that founded the classical styles. Again, the past masters never thought of themselves that way. They were not so arrogant. They knew they were a strong link in the chain and they sought to make other strong links. We do not honour them when we conduct ourselves with a we-are-not-worthy mindset, because that will see the work of the past masters go into permanent decline, with each generation accepting that the best they can hope to be is a poor photocopy of what went before. We are martial artists, and artists, by very definition, create works of art. We need to thoroughly learn what went before so we have the knowledge and the foundation to make our contribution, no matter how small, to Karate 3.0. If we can make improvements based on experience, the advancement of sports science, successful experimentation, etc., then we should. That will never happen if we indoctrinate the idea that perfection has already been achieved. Karate 3.0 will see our styles as a solid, valuable and firm foundation, not as an impenetrable ceiling. The next point. Promotion of the lifelong journey that karate can provide and an acceptance of the legitimacy of all parts of that journey. Karate can truly last a lifetime and it is my view that we don't emphasise that enough. Not all martial arts can make this claim. Karate can bring fun, exercise and discipline to young children. It can bring demanding challenge and a way of proving oneself to teens and young adults, i.e. sport. It can bring the skills needed to protect family and loved ones to adults. To the middle-aged it can bring a means to stay fit and healthy. To the elderly it can provide a gentle form of exercise and healthy stimulation of mind and body, which was recently observed in a scientific study which had a group of people over 70-year-olds doing kata and noticed improvements in both um, cognitive and physical abilities. Not all martial arts can boast this. 
Tai Chi generally does not appeal to 20-something who wants something vigorous and demanding in order to prove something to themselves and their peer group. MMA does not appeal to those in their 50s due to the fact that it can be very hard on the body. Karate is capable of being a lifelong journey with its many aspects both appealing to and addressing the needs of various age groups. It's not just for one part or one time period of your life. It can take us from cradle to grave. This is a very strong selling point that karate is failing to communicate to the general public and prospective students. Part of the problem is that people within a given age group tend to focus on their preferred aspect and in doing so believe that it should have more value to all other groups and not just theirs. How many self-defence focused karateka do we see mocking kids karate? And how many fighters do we see mocking the older karateka who just do kata for the enjoyment of kata? Too many. All parts of karate have their value and, as is always the case, we can realise that value so long as we don't confuse them with one another. Sport is not self-defence, is not fighting, is not art, is not health and so on. Karate 3.0 needs to push the fact that it's a whole-of-life pursuit that values what all aspects can give to all practitioners, whilst never muddling them up, confusing one aspect with another, or devaluing other aspects when they have a specific interest in one of them. The next point. We need to embrace our true history over our cherished myths. Karate 3.0 needs to be honest and accurate. Stories with no basis in fact have been repeated so often that people take them as accepted truth. Karate does not have its deep origins in the Shaolin Temple. And while we're at it, Bodhimara was not the founder of Shaolin Kung Fu either. You know, that myth comes from a forged 17th century Qi Kung manual, produced 1,000 years or so after Bodhimara lived. Karate was also not the fighting art of the resistance by the unarmed peasants of Okinawa when dealing with their samurai overlords. Breaking does not have its origins in smashing through the wooden armour of samurai. Zen and karate have no historical link. Indeed, the whole Zen-Budo connection is revisionist history that finds its origins not in Japan, but in the West. I mean, we could do podcasts on all of these, but for this podcast, it's enough to state that all of the above are untrue, and the fact that they are oft-repeated makes them no truer. However, some quarters see these myths as being foundational to their understanding of karate. Hence, any attempts to debunk these myths are seen as an attack on karate itself. We need to get rid of them, though. Of course, we should understand where these myths came from, who started them, and what purpose they were meant to serve. That's part of karate history. But the myths themselves have no basis in history. We need to have a thorough historical clean-up so that Karate 3.0 is based on solid historical foundations. Indeed, I would suggest that seeking to be part of a real tradition is way more satisfying than seeking to be part of a false one. And the final point, we need to see an end to the deification of sensei. We need to wipe away the last traces of cult-like thinking that persists in some quarters. Ultimately, your sensei is your sensei because they are better at punching people in the head than you are. That's it. Sure, they have worked hard and gained valuable knowledge and experience, but that does not make them experts in all things. As humans, we have a bad habit of assuming that skill and knowledge in one area equates to skill and knowledge in all areas. Oh, you're a good actor, so let's sit in awe while you tell us about how the situation in the Middle East needs to be resolved.
you make good music, so tell me how to vote. You know, you're good at kicking a ball accurately, so I expect you to be an honourable man and a paragon of virtue. You know, it, it doesn't work that way. Of course, people can be skilled and knowledgeable in more than one area, but it should not be assumed. Your sensei is not a life coach. You shouldn't expect them to be, and they should not present themselves as such. The fact they have achieved things in the spheres of martial arts may give them the ability to say some interesting and valuable things on work ethic, discipline, goal setting, etc. However, it doesn't make them an expert in relationships, politics, finance, spirituality, and so on. I know martial arts instructors who are doctors, so I value their opinion on medical matters. I know martial arts instructors who have been successful in business, so I value their opinion on financial matters. I know martial arts instructors who are priests and monks, so I value their opinion on matters surrounding their faith. I know sensei who have worked in high-level politics, so I value their insights on political matters. In all cases, I reserve the right to think for myself and disagree. And in all cases, the fact that I value their opinion on non-martial matters has nothing to do with their skill in martial arts. Karate 3.0 will see sensei for what they are. Skilled and knowledgeable individuals in the sphere of martial arts. They can help us in that sphere and related spheres. But unless they have independently acquired skills, knowledge and experience in other areas, we should not assume it. So let's summarise what we've discussed. Now, karate has always been evolving and changing. And it has always been the case that the current generation, which is us, that's us now, needs to determine the direction that karate will head and what kind of karate the following generations will be bequeathed. We owe it to the past generations to do all we can to ensure karate remains healthy, popular and the best it can be. We owe it to ourselves to practice a form of karate that we enjoy and that serves our needs. And we owe it to future generations to pass on to them a form of karate that will serve as a solid foundation for their own developments. In this podcast, I put forward eight key points that I think karate needs to embrace if we're to deliver on the aforementioned obligations. So to recap, these were, number one, the acceptance of modern bunkai as the bunkai. Number two, being practical in all that we do. Number three, defining context in all that we do so we can train effectively and enjoy all the martial arts have to offer. Number four, accepting that change and assimilation are traditional and vital for karate's growth. Number five, the end of style limitations. Number six, promotion of the lifelong journey that karate can provide and an acceptance of the legitimacy of all parts of that journey. Number seven, we need to replace cherished myths with our true history. And number eight, we need an end to the deification of sensei. Now, none of this should be seen as being overly radical. You know, I'm not asking for a revolution, but simply a continued evolution of karate in a healthy direction that I'm sure that the past masters would approve of and that future generations will thank us for. Well, I hope you found that an interesting and thought-provoking listen. Uh, as always, you know, I never shy from giving you uh, my opinions and you know, obviously believe in my opinions and my views. But I accept there are other ways to view things. And in telling you what I think, as I said at the start, I'm not telling you how to think. But uh, I hope that has been a, an interesting uh, listen. 
Uh, hopefully I'll be back with another podcast uh, sooner than I was between uh, the last one and this one. Obviously the uh, arrival of our uh, child may slow things down a little, but if you keep an eye on Facebook and the website and Twitter, I'll be sure to uh, let you know when we have news on that front. Uh, and also, you know, if, if you like these podcasts, you're going to love the app, you know, because every week you get a short uh, video uh, message from me in addition to new content that you won't see anywhere else. It's effectively like, you know, a weekly um, Bunkai TV show, you know, that you can watch uh, and as well with all the content that we've organized on there. You know, it, it's massive. And also, you know, if you like the app and you'd like to do something similar yourself, check out the Buddha Code website. Because I've been really impressed with the guys at, at, at Budo Code. So if you want to make a, a similar app for your syllabus and for your students, uh, check it out because it is very impressive and, and very easy to use. <laughs> Even a you know Neanderthal like me can can make use of that technology. So you know, should, should check that out. And uh, yeah, as I say, because we're a little bit behind, you know, let me know what your favourite podcasts have been over the last ten years, and then I'll be sure to get you uh, your views included in the special thing that I still can't tell you about. Okay, so thanks once again for all your support of the podcast. I really appreciate you listening in and spending some time with me. Uh, I hope that your things uh, training goes well, and I hope you have a great time until I'm back in the uh, the next podcast. Okay, take care, and I'll speak to you very soon. Okay, bye-bye now.